0: From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, sponsored by GE
1: Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. And later in the program, you can't have air power without airplanes. We look at the ability of the United States and its allies to surge aircraft production in the wake of Boeing's announcement that the F 18 Super Hornet fighter production would end by 2026. And we'll get a preview of next week's Air and Space Forces Association Warfare Symposium, along with the week's top headlines in global air power. And it's all made possible by GE Aerospace. From America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine, GE Aerospace has been delivering firsts for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn about its latest innovations at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, and Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And don't miss our other
0: weekly podcasts, Cavas Ships hosted by Chris Cavas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our cyber report sponsored by Fortress Information Security
1: and hosted by, hey, it's Vago Meradian. Yes, at this point, people are already uh, totally sick of hearing me. And on that note, uh, uh, JJ, talk to us about the headlines of the week on All Wings Considered. <laughs> Vago, just a couple of quick headlines this week. Singapore has signed up for eight more
0: F-35s. They are one of the few customers for the short takeoff and vertical landing B model, and this buy adds to the four they already have. They are also expected to buy F-35As. The Air Force awarded Boeing a contract to design and deliver two variants of the E-7, Airborne Early Warning and Command Jet. That's interesting for two reasons. First, because while we knew they intended to acquire E-7s, this makes it real and also because they're developing two variants. We know that 26 E-7s are slated to replace the E-3 Sentry AWACS platform. What the other variant might do is interesting to contemplate. Normally, we might know what that other airplane is by looking at the Department of Defense's 30-year aviation plan. But this week, Inside Defense reported that the department has decided to declare the 30-year program as controlled, unclassified material. That means this document, which has always been available to the public, is not classified now, but it's also not available to the public, analysts, journalists, or really anyone the DOD chooses not to show it to. That report was not always very accurate. It was based on the congressionally mandated 30-year shipbuilding program. Well, with ships, it means a lot to project out that far when ships take several years apiece to build, because aircraft production plans changed almost every year the 30-year projections didn't tend to hold up well over time.
1: But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be able to see the best thinking the department has. Vago? Yeah, at first, um, I want to uh, comment on uh, the E7 plan. Uh, the sooner we get to replace and, and can replace um, the, the AWAC uh, platform uh, with something more sustainable, more available, and with uh, newer and fresher technology, uh, the better given the importance of that as an airborne uh, command uh, asset. To your last uh, point, look, I, I think you, you either classify it and you say that this is a classified endeavor and we cannot discuss it, but turning it into controlled unclassified information, I think is a bit of an absurdity. You know, At the end of the day, discuss what you can and be open about it if you can. And if you can't, then, then actually just say, hey, for a whole variety of reasons, we're not able to, to part with that information. Um, there's a lot of things we did in the Cold War that we did not uh, discuss uh, as openly. I think everybody understands we might be going in that direction. But taking this kind of a half measure makes you ask, what's the point of doing that? It's not like somebody isn't going to be able to get it. It is something that will be widely shared. And moreover, to your original point, right, you were sitting at the Congressional Research Service studying this stuff. It's, if it's not reliable, why are you doing it in the first place and wasting everybody's time and effort with it?
0: Well, and for a while, it was a congressionally mandated complement to the 30-year shipbuilding study. That congressional mandate has come and gone. But one of the things that this affects, frankly, is Congress's ability to see it because so many of the congressional staffers who deal with these issues actually do not have clearances. So if you call it a classified document, they can't see it. If you call it an unclassified but controlled document, maybe they can see it. But the whole idea that something is in between classification and a lack of classification defies Schrodinger, or maybe it's Heisenberg. I'm
1: never sure which. I think it's the uncertainty uh, principle, but it would be interesting (laughs) from a Schrodinger, you know, is there uh, there information in that box or not? And so much for the quantum physics uh, part of the program. But Vago, this is really relevant to our upcoming discussion because
0: One of the points of having a 30-year plan is telling industry, here's what you need to get ready for in the future. Well, right now, it doesn't look like we're necessarily ready for the challenges
1: right ahead of us. And that's why we get to talk to Dr. Jerry McGinn and Richard Abolafia. Uh, Indeed. uh, We decided to delve into this topic after a conversation on Monday, uh, where a friend uh, asked uh, whether it made sense to actually keep F-18 production going. you know, His point was, uh, without any disrespect to anybody, including the United States Navy, hey, look, it's, it's not the best airplane in the world, but an airplane is better than no airplane, especially given the state of the F-18 fleet. And as we've seen in war game after war game, we lose a lot of airplanes and a lot of ships and a lot of people uh, in uh, a war, for example, uh, with China. So doesn't it make sense to have as many airplanes as we can build that out now, indeed with the munitions, And so that raised the question of surge capacity and whether or not we can build all the stuff uh, that we want uh, to build. We are joined by some of the world's leading aviation and industrial-based minds. Uh, Joining us is... Uh, Our good friend Richard Abalafia, who you hear from every Sunday on the Defense and Aerospace Reports Business Roundtable, and Dr. Jerry McGinn, who uh, has uh, not only served in industry for a long time, but also was uh, DOD's industrial-based policy chief, and he's now the executive director of uh, the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason's uh, University School of Business, otherwise known as the Baroni Center. Richard and Jerry, thanks so very much for joining us. Great to be on this program too, Vago. It's a pleasure. Great to be with you again, Vago. And in this particular case, I want to say that JJ, who is our co-host, is much, much more than that. And so he's also going to be joining us as a guest and and a discussant. Uh, In this conversation, given his extraordinary experience on the House Armed Services Committee, at the Congressional Research Service, at the Aerospace Industries Association, at CSIS, RAND, it goes on and on and on. Uh, So, JJ, thanks so very much for joining us for this conversation. Glad to turn my inability to hold a job into a benefit, Vago. (laughs) Well, I should also point out for for people, you held each of these jobs for for many years without dating you, uh, without dating you at all, JJ. (laughs) So, the question that I want to quickly go around the horn on, on everybody. Is do we have the surge capacity? Do we have the engineers, the production people, uh, as well as the supply chain to support a surge if we get into a scrape and we need to be delivering jets uh, and aircraft at a, at a higher pace? So you know, perhaps Jerry, uh, why don't you start us off, and then and then Richard, get your sense, and JJ, uh, yours, uh, and then the next question, or if you guys want to tie into this, if we don't. What are the policy, industrial base, as well as political action we need to take to try to get to that kind of uh, capacity, even in reserve, right? Because in the wake of the BCA, the Budget Control Act, we, got, we went ultra efficient, so we actually don't have a lot of wiggle room capacity. Jerry, uh, start us off.
2: Yeah, Navago no, I think you hit the, 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 the point right away. I mean, the issue for the, our industrial base and for our capability of our forces right now is, is not capability, it's capacity. We just do not have enough, um, you know, from, you know, from munitions to aircraft to ships for the kind of scenarios that are fa- that we're facing. Well, you know, lots of war games have been done, classified and unclassified. You know, we use kind of all of our kind of munitions within a week in a Taiwan Strait scenario. You know, we lose the trip, a lot of jets and, um, and ships and the like. So capacity is the name is the name of the game. And my argument is that we kind of have to do four things to address it. One is we have to produce more. Second, we need to uh, buy differently. And the third is that we need to strengthen our supply chains. And the fourth is we need to adopt that build allied approach. So I'm, I'm happy to unpack it to those as we kind of walk through this.
1: Richard? Yeah, you know,
3: we don't, right? I mean, we've got this <laughs> industrial base. That's a simple answer. I can stop
1: there, right? Uh, yeah, that's you know, it. We, thank you, everybody. We'll, we'll end the discussion there. No, go <laughs> that's on. Right.
3: You know, we've got an industrial base geared for peacetime. And we have contracting mechanisms geared for peacetime. And we've got the you know rules and regulations and, and everything else and the subcontractor base geared for peacetime. We don't have the ability to search. We can develop it. It's just going to take a lot of work and the recognition that this is a completely different uh, security environment. But you know, right now, the numbers speak for themselves. I mean, obviously, the highest priority jet for production is the F-35. And there we're stumbling. Market demand is... Probably at this point, you could deliver 190, 200 this year and keep people happy. The ostensible goal was to get to 156. Uh, The guidance was 148. They wound up with the year at 141 because of that last minute engine stumble. That really is kind of all you need to know. But of course, you also have this incredibly complicated uh, supply chain structure. That serves both commercial and military needs in aerospace. Both markets inconveniently are doing great, which of course is putting all kinds of strains on the system. So as a consequence, you know, we just we can't build what we would like to build right now. And you know, we look at combat aircraft as you know a finished whole, Understandably, you know, people say, ah, X number of jets or let's not kill a production line, whatever else. But the real story. Is in uh, and, and tier one is largely in good shape, but tier two and three and whatever else, um, we've got real capacity constraints there.
1: So, JJ, you know, bridges to the how do we get to a solution, right? I mean, what are all the systemic things that have to happen? And if anybody's got an estimate, how much do we need to start investing now in building up that capacity? Well, the budget's going to be out on March 9th. What are the things that have to happen and do we have our arms wrapped around all the things that have to happen for us to get there, whether it's on the jet side of things or whether it's on the munition side of things? Well, first of all, if you look Factory by factory,
0: there is some surge capacity, but where there is capacity, it is dedicated to a particular platform. What we really seem to lack is flexible capacity where we can say what we need is this many more of a particular plane and just build that wherever there is room. The tooling in these factories is dedicated to a specific aircraft. The factory space itself is just empty building space. You can recreate that almost anywhere. But the other asset that you lack when you go to surge is experienced and trained production people. If you tried to bring the F-22 back today, the tooling is sitting in the California desert. You could get that. The building space is available, but it's the people that are gone.
1: And that's the hardest thing to recreate. Um, So, Jerry, what are the things that have to happen to get us there? In World War II, the way we did this was better production engineering, right? Right. Uh, Ford looked at the B-24 and said, hey, wait a minute, you guys are doing this all wrong. If you want to build it, these are all the changes you guys have to make to this airplane for a, right? For, for somewhat less skilled people to produce a very skilled item. What are the ways that we need to sort of think through the problem or even break it down? Uh, or, yeah. or do we have to change the solution, right? I mean, is a collaborative combat aircraft a better way of pursuing this than saying, okay, we're going to do this through ultra high-end fighters, Uh, you know, that are carrying these long range munitions, you know, you know, rethinking the problem?
2: Yeah, I I think I think you have to do both. I mean, when I say we we should need to produce more, we need to, we need to produce more of the systems that, you know, that are currently kind of in production, we need to relook at kind of how we, you know, the incentives to, um, to build capacity for existing jets and F-35 and beyond, because right now, they're pretty much kind of you know, if you've been out of Fort Worth, you know, kind of tail to toe, you know, really, really packed in there. So we need to figure out how can, we can do more of that incentives to do that for the for industry and put that under contract. But then I think our concept of operations has got to change. And, yeah, you have to change the model and how we fight. We've got these tremendous high end systems. We have to really focus now on how we collaborate those with kind of more commercial kind of off the shelf capabilities like Kind of commercial drones and like so we can get more out of our existing systems. So we have to change the model on, on how we fight and how we uh, collaborate between our high end systems and a lot of the commercial drones and uh, U- uh, UUVs uh, and the like because that's how we uh, we get um, we get more capacity is where we've got high end uh, high end systems working with a commercial more expendable you know, uh, unmanned systems. Uh, and I think CQ Brown's talking about that. The Navy's looking at that, you know, in addition, in addition to producing more, that's another way for us to build capacity uh, with the existing capabilities.
1: Richard, how, you know, with we, we Guillaume Fourie, Uh, The Airbus chief executive uh, spoke at the Aero Club of Washington yesterday. It was a great discussion. Uh, And one of the things that he talked about was the importance of us doing this transatlantically, that it should not be by American, it shouldn't be uh, by European. It should be, uh, you know, sort of working transatlantically to address some of these challenges, uh, ultimately. You know, like, what are the things we have to do on both sides of the Atlantic that can scratch our mutual itches? And by the way, do you have any sense on how much money right, a two-part question. What's the upfront investment that has to be made to build surge capacity? And then what's the way to do this in a transatlantic way, uh, given that Europe has incredible capabilities? By the way, so does Japan and South Korea, right? I mean, we're all allied, Australia, uh, we're all allied nations uh, increasingly now. What's what's the way to think of this, you know, maybe not just transatlantically, but transglobally to get to where we need to be?
3: Yeah, that's so many big issues embedded in this. But, you know, the, the sort of overarching commercial term is friendshoring. friend shoring. You know, I mean, it's in other words, you're retreating a bit from the sort of days of uh, globalization where everything goes to China and whatever else. And we're thinking in terms of uh, people within the trusted sphere of acceptable partners and people who will not rip off your intellectual property and people who are not a strategic threat. And thankfully, we've got a terrific group of them and uh, they're willing to work with us. What needs to be done? Well, obviously, we need a two-way street. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's not to say we should you know, force France to accept a greater degree of US content, far from it. But on the other hand, there ought to be discussions about, look, everyone should be on the same page here in terms of that two-way street. Obviously, there are all kinds of regulatory reforms needed, particularly along ITAR lines in both ways. Um I think the most important thing to acknowledge though is that right now one of the great mega trends in defense is sovereignty and indigenization and creating more capabilities in country. You mentioned South Korea, that's a classic example of that. Australia which didn't care about offsets 10 years ago now wants its own missiles industry and whatever else and that's all fine well and good and they're prepared to fund it let's harness that let's say okay so you want this level of in-country capability here's where we could use a little more bandwidth out there you know let's get into you know the whether it's everything from rare earth elements and castings and forgings all the way up to you know specific uh, finished aircraft or finished missile programs. Basically, a greater level of coordination is needed. But uh, Monsieur Feli, I could not agree more. This needs to be a team effort because that's the only way you'll get adequate bandwidth. And also, you know, just like in the commercial world, building a national aircraft is a loser move. You know, you're guaranteeing that you don't get best in breed if you don't cross borders. So this makes perfect sense to me.
2: I think, uh, Richard, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, the uh, build allied approach is kind of how I frame it. And I think we have to think of it in those terms. And the good news is we already do a lot of it. I mean, we already do F-35 as a big example. It's painful. It was incredibly painful to do. But now that we have it, you know, you have some of those connections and we have to do more of this licensed production. We have to do more co-production. And we've got some examples beyond F-35, the alternate uh, engine for uh, Amram uh, that's made by NAMO that was qualified several years ago, almost a decade ago now. Those kind of models where we're doing kind of, you know, where we qualify other systems and build them in in partner countries, that's the kind of the way that we can kind of build capacity to benefit not just the United States, but other countries um, and uh, help us um, to get more together.
0: There's another set of concerns and Jerry you had to deal with some of these very directly when you were in the Department of Defense and it is that all the incentives we see for industry are to minimize unused overhead. If something is not in production they want to close that line, they want to get rid of that tooling. We saw this for example when the C17 plant the the end of that line was coming into sight, Boeing almost couldn't get rid of that factory at Long Beach fast enough and turn it into cash. How do you incentivize companies and by the way, Congress, who care not about the buildings, but about jobs to maintain capacity that we may need someday that we may not need today.
2: Well, JJ, I think the easy answer to that is you just have to you have to, incentivize, you have to put it in the contract. You know, I think we have to think about these instead of this just in time approach where we build programs just to build enough, you know, ships or whatever to meet the exact needs, but we have to, you know, build in and cleanse that have companies, you know, b- maintain that capacity at certain costs. I mean, there that hasn't been in our mindset for since the Cold War, really. So, you know, so I think we just have to get get to that uh, and that does that cost, but it, it's going to be the, the cost of doing business
1: going forward. Uh, I should, uh, I should point out, right. You sound Jerry, just like uh, Frank Kendall, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall is always like, "Hey, look, you can do this through better contracting, right? If you're thoughtful, you'll get the desired outcomes uh, if you if you build them uh, the right way." Uh, Richard, your sense on that?
3: Yeah, you know, absolutely. Looking at from the perspective of industry, one mechanism we could pull in order to secure adequate bandwidth in the industrial base is a uh, greater use of multi-year procurement contracts and. Move that down to sort of a granular level. You know, right now, of course, people are understandably concerned about titanium castings and forgings because of, you know, the the end of Russia as a major supplier for a lot of the primes in the commercial world, and of course that impinges upon uh, military supply too. You know, but there's no reason we can't stand up that capacity. It's just that people aren't willing to make that investment uh, to the extent necessary. Because they know, hey, if the Russians come, on, come back online, they'll be underpriced. So it's very simple. You come up with some kind of multi-year procurement process that says, we will guarantee the purchase of five years of your fine titanium castings and forgings at this price, no matter what Russia does and that'll make it good when you make that big upfront investment because you know you have a lot of parts of the supply chain like castings and forgings that are really super capital intensive upfront so solve the problem with multi-year procurement not just at the you know the high end finished system but also in various uh, bandwidth constrained parts of the supply chain too now looking at things from the standpoint of government You know, I mean, look, at the end of the day, the Pentagon pays the bills here. So we ought to be thinking in terms, I think, as JJ implies of saying, well, let's pay a little extra for post-production preservation you know, and um, and whatever has to be done, but this gets super complicated. Getting back to that F-22 example that JJ mentioned before, you know, I remember doing the F-22 death tour back about 15 years ago, whenever it was, you know, where they they took you around and, and showed you, here's what we're doing to preserve the, the core knowledge, you know, sort of like an interactive DVD of people turning wrenches and saying, and click here for, you know, how to insert this particular uh, nut or bolt. And it was really fascinating, but you also realized beyond a few years just how futile that was if the various subcomponents weren't in production. How do you recreate an APG 77 radar? Heck, how do you replicate an 86 chip computer? And if you have to replace these components with more modern ones, well, what does that mean in terms of additional costs and time and restart? So the more you look at industrial-based preservation, the more you realize how complicated it's gotten because of the multi-tier nature of the supply chain.
0: And to follow on that, Richard, of course, as you mentioned, the longer you leave a design out of production, the more redesign you're going to want to do when it comes back to take advantage of technologies that have developed in the interim. If we were restarting the F-22 today, we wouldn't be trying to build a 2010 spec F-22. We would take coatings that we have learned more about from the F-35. We'd certainly take advances in electronics and in radars. And yes, a computer system that does not rely on a 286 chip and build it from there. So at some point, the cost of recreating something crosses the line of the cost to keep it going in the first place and becomes less advisable.
1: Unfortunately, we don't have that much time left in the conversation. So each one of you, uh, we're going to go one uh, question for for each of you. Um, And uh, Jerry, why don't you help us out? Right. I mean, basically, in, in the evolution of the defense industrial base after the Cold War, each one of the prime contractors is a tollkeeper, right? The architectures are closed even though we've tried to open them. Once upon a time, the government would pick the engine and the radar and then work with the integrator, uh, the prime contractor to put it together. We vested a lot of that control increasingly in industry. Now we're trying to pull it back. But each one of the major prime contractors is still a tollkeeper on it. To change anything requires going through them. Do we need to sort of go back to the future and federate this? break it apart so that if Maradian manufacturing is not delivering it, McKinn Industries comes in there and fixes it.
2: Oh, absolutely. I think we do have to do that. And, and you're already starting to see that. I mean, the focus on uh, Mosa or Mata uh, open systems architecture, the whole idea of that is having sort of, Design control or uh, of different segments of a major platform, so that you, you can swap out kind of performers in time and maintain competition through a life of a program. And I think we have to go back to um, we're, again, we're optimized for producing one uh, item at the maximum rate to get most efficiency. I think we have to think about kind of multi uh, award, uh, multi source procurement because it's it's shown with you know with missiles and with even the great engine wars you know, that you can actually, in the long run, get more capacity at, at a lower overall cost in time doing it that way. And I just think we need to kind of step back and look at that clear eye today. And that seems to me a way you can build capacity, you know, over time.
1: Richard, I want to ask you a facilitation question. You know, World War II uh, bomber production lines uh, are still the foundation of our depot system, whether at Tinker or elsewhere. The F-35 is made in a factory uh, in in Fort Worth, uh, for example, that dates to World War II. I just got back from uh, San Francisco, visited the Ames Research Center uh, and that wind tunnel and the one its mirror in Langley date from World War II. Uh, a lot of this infrastructure is old. You know, we're doing a chip sack to put tens of billions of dollars into improving the microelectronics uh, industrial base in the United States, from design to fabs. Do we need to have a similar kind of national defense industrialization legislation that says, here are the kind of factories of the future, some capacity that we're setting aside in educational programs so that we have the people and the, the equipment necessary to do what it is we need to do?
3: You know, it's really fascinating to me, Vago, because right now, if I had to look at this from a broader macro perspective, I'd say the one big theme um, in the US and elsewhere is it industrial policy is back, baby. You know, I mean, sort of went away for a bunch of decades, but you take you back 30, 40 years, you know, people were talking in terms of what do we need to develop a national this, that, or you know, space plane industry or you know, uh, fuzzy logic, you know, all that stuff that was in vogue in the late 80s. How do we compete with Japan? Oh my, you know, and it's back, it's back very, very big. And yet. And yet, very little that extends down to the defense industry. That's kind of funny. You know, you mentioned the Chips Act. My God, the amount of money going into that—it's like a recipe for overcapacity, in my view. But nevertheless, it's—it's it's what's happening, and uh, obviously, green technology and whatever else. But yet, very little is trickling down to defense. Um, and I'd really like to see a greater emphasis on the identification and cultivation of technology development roadmaps, and not just for the big factories. And you're right that the sort of charismatic megafauna of the industry is wonderful. But we need to think in terms of what is needed to evolve You know, out of the next generation of building blocks for radars or um, encryption or artificial intelligence needed to make collaborative combat aircraft more meaningfully effective and whatever else, you know, there's some money that goes into this, but I I think we need to think about these technology development roadmaps and industry cultivation strategies, just the same way we think about the kind of big production line issues we're wrestling with.
1: Uh, JJ, uh, your your sense uh, on all this, and one follow-up question, which is, we have a boneyard that has everything from F eighty sixes in it to stuff as old, um, including some new uh, and some borrowed and some blue. Ultimately, is there a point to the boneyard? I mean, can we get anything out of there at scale and speed in the event of a national national crisis? I mean, this is like the mothball fleet, and then you realize like pulling anything from the mothball fleet is protracted affair. Uh, and doesn't go as quickly as as we want it to go on, on either one of those uh, points as we close up. Well, with regard to the Boneyard, it really depends on why the platform was sent there
0: first and what you want to be able to use it for. Things go to the Boneyard because their technology has become obsolete. The other side has figured out a way to solve it. We don't think it's survivable or because a particular platform or model of platform or lot of model of platform got so expensive to maintain that it just wasn't worth trying to keep them flying and we'd rather spend the money on something newer. If you're trying to bring something relatively recent out of the boneyard, it might be combat relevant, but so much of what is there only makes sense to bring back if what you're trying to do is take a previously inhabited platform and make it into a UAV, whether that's for target practice or to complicate an adversary's problem in analyzing what's coming toward them. Most of what is there is capital intensive to bring back and frankly may not be that useful except as capacity. You're not going to bring things out of the boneyard to increase capability. With regard to the rest of the question, I keep coming back to the people. When the F-22 line was shutting down, those experienced workers were told, you can go to Fort Worth and work on F-35, or you can go to Waffle House. You can't take the people who went to Waffle House now, put them right back on a production line, and expect them to be able to be that effective on a design that they haven't seen before. So, yes, we have some ways to pay for facilities and keep facilities around, the real trick, it seems to me, is in the liveware and keeping people's skills relevant and the right number that we need in order to move forward on new programs in a short period of time. That's really what we're talking about is surge. A war starts. How fast do we need it? The faster we think
1: we're going to need more, the more we need to spend in the interim to keep facilities and people ready. To go back to a conversation that our uh, mutual friend, Byron Callen and I have had, right? If you go back before World War II, we started designing things that would go into production if the war started. And so we had thought through some of these problems and I would submit the Pentagon would, would do itself a real big favor to go in and think, okay, so in the event the bullets start flying, what is it I could build and build quickly and thoughtfully and efficiently Because Frank Kendall, to give uh, Secretary Kendall his due, was the only, when everybody in Washington was talking about, you know, future wars will be over like lightning, and it'll be bam, 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 and done with, he was one of the people who would always say, yeah, but what if it's a long war, and I'm going to bet you dollars the donuts, it will be a long war, and what do we do then? What do we do with all the broken ships? What do we do with all the broken planes? And to your guy's point, right, in these war games, We don't have a dozen F-35s that are destroyed in a day. We have dozens of squadrons of F-35s that might be destroyed in a day. Uh, So uh, certainly uh, food for thought for all. Everybody, thanks very much uh, for joining us.
2: Thanks, Vago and JJ. It was great uh, being with you all and great uh, talking with Richard as well.
1: Yeah, really a privilege to be on the podcast. Uh, Thanks,
3: Vago, JJ, and of course, Jerry.
0: Next week, the Air Power podcast will be live and on the scene at the Warfare Symposium in Denver, Colorado. That's put together every year by the Air and Space Forces Association and their Executive Vice President, Major General Doug Rayburg. Very glad to have him for a little peek into the future and what's coming up. General, good to have you. What are the messages that you hope people will take away from this year's Warfare Symposium?
4: Yeah, JJ, thank you. I would say uh, the first off is this is not only going to be an exciting show, but the AFA Warfare Symposium is going to be an extraordinary show uh, for multiple reasons. But one is we have now migrated the show to the Aurora Denver uh, airport area. It is focused on warfare, as implied in the uh, the name of the, uh, the mm-hmm. thing, but it's key that it focuses on dominant air and space forces to deter fight and win our theme this year for the show. And you're going to see upwards of six, possibly even 7,000 attendees. We can touch on that in a second. JJ, I am also excited the fact that we are also doing a transformational change from what we used to have was mission capability areas to address the operational imperatives that the Secretary of the Air Force introduced when he came on board. So throughout the show, you're going to see a very focused area with industry participation, addressing each and every one of those imperatives. We really look forward to hearing from industry.
1: Uh, by the way, welcome uh, to the program, the, uh, the first, but uh, hopefully many times more on the Air Power podcast. Uh, and it's an honor, uh, honor to have you on. Why Denver, right? I mean, there are a lot of folks who uh, look at this as being an Orlando uh, event at the Rosen Shingle. Um, why did you guys uh, make the decision that, that Denver uh, really was the right place uh, for the first of the two major Air and Space Forces uh, Association events?
4: Yeah, thank you, Vago. This decision was well over three years ago. Uh, this is the transformation that uh, Air and Space Forces Association uh, consciously made. We essentially grew out of the Rose Shingle Hotel in Orlando, Florida, after 36 years. And we realized that we needed to take the show closer to the centroid of space, uh, literally the space corridor of Denver all the way to Colorado Springs, But also put us closer to a lot of the other installations, Space Force bases, Air Force bases, uh, to make this show more accessible uh, physically for our guardians and airmen out there. And we're excited to have them because, as you know, that's the icon of the show. When you come in, the immediate thing you see are a sea of blue uh, space and air force uh, airmen guardians. And that's the exciting part of our show. Uh, we're also excited because being in Colorado, we're near the airport that essentially is the second most open and busiest airport in the United States. Uh, a lot of people question the snow. I will guarantee you that you will be able to get in and you'll have a great time.
1: <laughs> Always a great time because you guys put on uh, a terrific uh, a terrific program uh, in in indeed. And generally in the new location, what new elements can we expect in the show?
0: This has always been distinctive because it is a gathering of the brass. It is a symposium. It's a discussion. Apart from the conversations among Air Force leaders and with Air Force leaders, what else do we expect to see in the show in the, over the next week?
4: We are actually looking at the future already through this show. This will be uh, essentially a day and a half as it's traditionally been. But the difference is we're starting on a Monday as opposed to a Wednesday that we did in Florida. So fair warning to your audience, please be there on Monday, uh, the 6th of March. The the next biggest thing is we are blending towards a three-day show in the next two years. We are also taking this iconic show to also commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Vietnam return of the POWs. So we are going to kick off on Monday the very first panel will be two distinguished POWs plus a fighter ace, Chuck de Bellevue, And you'll also see uh, uh, Gene Smith as well as uh, uh, Lee Ellis. And I think their story is very compelling, but it's part of what AFA is doing to honor and commemorate our Vietnam veterans uh, now and into the future.
1: uh, Indeed, and and that's going to be a very very special. And I should point out uh, how uh, you guys worked with the American Heritage Museum uh, for uh, the Vietnam uh, Veterans and POW Memorial that has a Hanoi Hilton uh, cell uh, in it. And I know how hard Doug Berkey uh, at uh, AFA's Mitchell Institute worked on on trying to help make that happen as well. Let me ask you one last question, Doug. You know the pandemic, right? I mean last year's uh, AFA uh, in September was sort of the, the, the return to, to normal, but COVID did have an impact and, and change all of us uh, in in how we operate. It certainly changed uh, what we do. And it changed also how you guys uh, bring, bring content. What are some of the lasting lessons uh, that are going to be manifest in this show on how you guys are trying to make it more accessible uh, worldwide, right? Because it is an action-packed day and a half But it is also a very important professional development seminar that I think people have a a tendency of sometimes not focusing as much on, even though that's the actual mission of the program, and indeed one of the actual missions of AFA.
4: Vago, that's the key. It's a premier professional development event. We learned that we need to capitalize on live, virtual, and constructive opportunities for our audience and our attendees. So globally, uh, we are now seeing around the world at various installations so people can still participate. I think the other thing that really changed in the trend was previously the shows tracked very nicely towards registration. I will tell you that starting last year, especially with the September show, we saw that registrations were tracking at least two to three weeks ahead of the norm. So in fact, that's why we were surprised Last year, when we had sixteen thousand five hundred attendees in the Washington D.C. show, and now we're going to see upwards of six to seven thousand this show. The other trend that changed is that we have grown in volume of the show. So instead of the normal, let's say sixty to seventy speakers, we're now over a hundred uh, for this upcoming show. That was normally the size of the September Airspace Cyber Conference. So it has gained incredible traction. The key is what's the future? The future is not just a three-day show, but rather to expand on a space warfare symposia, to make sure that we show the nation in America that AFA is promoting dominant air and space forces. And that's the key of this show is we have to constantly improve. We have to earn our spurs with our industry partners which I give a shout out right now because their commitment to this show is very important and they're the lightblood. And I want to thank every leader in the industry for what they bring to the show.
0: Major General Doug Rayberg, thank you so much for being with us. We look forward to spending time together next week and uh, especially seeing that Air Force, Space Force snowball fight.
4: <laughs> this is JJ, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and Vago and definitely look forward to having a, a nice cold cup of coffee out there in Denver.
1: Thank you. <laughs> That's very funny. I'm counting on snow, but unfortunately, it looks like we're going to have great weather. Not yeah, complaining, yeah. <laughs> but it looks like we're going to have great weather. <laughs> Doug, thanks very much. You're welcome.
0: Thanks for listening to the Air Power podcast, and be sure to tell your friends. A special thanks to GE Aerospace for their generous support. We'll be back next week.